That's Acts 18, verse 24, on page 1,118. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the weight of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross the Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirit came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook the, to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and the number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily.
Well, what's required in a situation where the advance of the rule of King Jesus takes place rapidly across a culture? At the close of each section of the book of Acts, we find a short piece. You might call them matters of growth, kind of things that need to be sorted out as the rule of Jesus advances. Now, in a sense, you'd say there's no surprise to that. One of the, the joys I have of going is, uh, in my job is of going to lots of weddings and uh, sometimes going to wedding receptions, which are just wonderful. And I found myself last night sitting next to a former senior army officer who had led his battalion in the second invasion of Iraq. And we were chatting about this and that, and I had this on my mind, and so I sort of slightly uh, cheated by asking the question of, you know, what happens when you've been engaged in such a rapid period of advance uh, as there was in the Second War? And he said, well, you have to have a period of reorganization. And so at any level on the battlefield, uh, uh, that's the cry in training or actually in reality, reorganization. And actually, when you stop and think about it, it's true in business, in any rapid advance in business, well, you're a fool if you don't kind of secure the ground that you've, uh, that you've uh, achieved. I mean, I guess any governing body rises or falls on the strength of its civil service. There has to be that kind of organizational integrity. And in the area of sport, you know, when a goal or a, a try is scored, when's the moment that it's most likely to be uh, a score back against you? Well, you have to organize yourself. And what we find in the book of Acts is at each of the major sections of the material, right at the end of a significant period of advance, we're shown an aspect of, if you like, important organization and uh, clarity. So in chapter 1 through chapter 6, the first part of chapter 6, the end of the section, there's the priority of the word of God. And you have a little piece to say, look, for all this advance... You must keep the word of God absolutely central and your main priority. And then in chapter 6 through chapter 9, in chapter 9, chapter 9 is all to do with the integrity of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. You must actually trust the Apostle Paul and his ministry as the gospel advances. 9 through 12, the issue has to do with persecution. Yeah, there will be persecution. The gospel is still going to advance. And 12 through 15, chapter 15, are all to do with the Council of Jerusalem. How are we going to deal with this vast number of people who are being becoming Christians out of radically un-Jewish cultures? So that whole issue is discussed. And we're in just that section at the moment. You can see chapter 9, verse 20. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So mightily advanced the word of Jesus and triumphed. That's one kind of translation of it. And the section concludes with the verses prior to that that, uh, piece where we are given three aspects, what you might sort of call them problems of growth, except that's too negative. Growth matters, you might call it. As the word of God advances mightily and triumphs, here are three aspects that kind of need to be sorted out. And we find one of them, an uninstructed instructor is instructed. And we find a second one, an unconverted believer is converted, with the believer in inverted commas. And then unchristian practices are eradicated. 
Well, let's take the first one, verses 24 through 28. And in a sense, it's not so much the specific issue that matters to us, but the the, the general point that this is bound to happen in the advance of the Christian gospel. Uninstructed instructors. Verse 24 through 28, chart the straightening out of Apollos by Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila's a bloke, Priscilla's his wife. And you can see the glowing terms in which Apollos is described in verses 24 through 26. He's described as eloquent, line three, competent, line three, line four, verse 25. He's instructed in the way of the Lord. He is fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately. Now, the word eloquent is learned, gifted, competent is strong, powerful, fervent. The word is elsewhere translated boiling. And faithful, he taught accurately. Wow, what a bloke. He must have been quite a guy, mustn't he? Had there been a world wide web, you can be sure he would have had a following of millions, probably his own podcasts and all sorts of other exotic accessories. And in the period of significant growth, there have been people like that across the church. You can name some of them, I'm sure. He came from Alexandria, which was on the north coast of Africa. And if you, I think you were given maps, weren't you, on your seats? But uh, we might put the map up if we got it there. And you can see that Alexandria was on the north coast of Africa, just at the south of the map. It's the one place named there. Alexandria was the center of one of the world's leading universities. And it had what is probably the largest library in antiquity. So, you know, what do we say? Oxford? No, probably Cambridge. Harvard? I don't know. Uh, he was PR trained, or, or almost certainly one of the London universities. He was PR trained. He was celebrity preacher material. But, you see, he only knew the baptism of John. That is, he's only been taught about repentance. He's not been taught of the need to receive the Lord Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus benefiting from the blessings of forgiveness of sins, the internal washing by the Holy Spirit, radical rebirth with God himself taking up dwelling within our life. And so you can see he'd been instructed in the way of Lord. He was fervent in spirit. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately because he only knew the baptism of John, verse 25. Remember what John said. John said, I baptize with water. In other words, I can get you wet on the outside. That's a human thing. Among you is one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's what we're really about, an internal work. So here we have Apollos. And then we have P&A, Priscilla and Aquila, or Aquila and Priscilla. We met them last week. They'd fled from Rome under the persecution of Claudius in 49 AD. They'd ended up in Corinth, where they had housed Paul and given him work. For the time that they were living with Paul and working alongside him, they would have had access to the best theological education the world has to offer. Interesting that they were actually theologically trained whilst doing the equivalent of stacking shelves in Tesco's. Verse 26 is a very striking verse. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When 
P&A heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation? What a couple Priscilla and Aquila must have been. Think about it. Not easy to correct a man like Apollos, this multi-talented, learned, gifted individual. I wonder how they raised the subject with a degree of trepidation, I suspect. Not easy to be corrected if you're a man like Apollos. I wonder how he received it. And doesn't it show a considerable level of tact on the part of Priscilla and Aquila and extraordinary humility on the part of Apollos? I think it's a beautiful piece, isn't it, there, verse 26? But what a result, 27. When he wished to cross to Achaia, that's across the water there, back into Ephesus, the brothers encouraged, uh, across the water into Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. What a result! So Priscilla and Aquila got this wonderfully right, and isn't it magnificent to see that? And I mentioned this last week, but, you know, over the decades, many, many people have gone out from churches, you know, like this, where we've tried to be immersed in the scriptures and found themselves in centers, churches, villages, and so forth, you know, across the whole of the United Kingdom and across the world. And in numbers of occasions, people have been able gently, tactfully, graciously to get alongside a Bible teacher in a church like that and see the gospel ministry turn around wonderfully to glorious effect. It's one of the reasons why I'm going to say, while you're here in London, make the most of the training you're going to get. It will serve you for a lifetime. And it could be multiplied out to huge benefit. But it's possible to get this horribly wrong. And I have to say, over the course of the years, from time to time, you know, individuals who've been so kind of enthusiastic and zealous about the new things they've learned in churches like this have then gone out and heard a, a, a ministry that is just, you know, mildly off course or substantially off course and come in kind of all guns blazing, you know, high noon and all the rest of it, to the poor Bible teaching staff in the particular place. My two sisters were here in the 1980s, and they really were greatly helped in Christian growth. And they're they're wonderful ladies, and they didn't do this. But as a result, we used to have a whole stream of people come down to, uh, to the little church where... Um, my parents attended, which I have to say was um, fairly off track in quite a number of ways. But, you know, some, I have to tell you, did not conduct themselves in the most brilliant way as they tore off the vicar a strip quite publicly at the end of the service rather than gently encouraging and helping. Well, there, I think, is a little snippet for us. It's bound to happen in kind of radical gospel advance, that there will be uninstructed instructors who need instructing. Let's do that really well, and the end goal is really worth it. 
But uninstructed instructors inevitably result in unconverted or misinformed so-called, in inverted commas, disciples. Now have a look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Let's whack that map up again on the, uh, on, on the, uh, the slide. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, where he found some, in inverted commas, disciples. Now have a look at that map. You'll see somewhere in the middle, over towards the top right, you've got Paul and Timothy and Silas, and they head off on the yellow, the yellow line of travel, which is what we've been looking at over the last five or six weeks. They go through Macedonia, down to Achaia, back across the water under Cyprus to Caesarea, Jerusalem, and up to Antioch. Paul then decides to start his third missionary journey. And just notice there, he's traveling through the interior, and it's worth marking that Paul regularly visited and revisited the churches and the towns where he'd done gospel work. You know, it's fair to say that Paul was just as much a church builder, strengthening and encouraging disciples, as he was a word planter. He was adamant that he should strengthen the churches. But then he ends up in Ephesus. And those of you who were here a few weeks ago will remember that right at the start in chapter 16, he was prevented from going to to Asia. He wanted to go there, but he was prevented. And now, quite wonderfully, he ends up back in Ephesus. And he's back in Ephesus, uh, and you can see that on the map, and he discovers these 12 disciples. And were they people who'd been taught by Apollos? Possibly. As he comes across these 12 disciples, clearly they had heard of the work of John the Baptist and a summons to repentance, but they had not heard of the offer of forgiveness of sins and the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul said to them, verse 2, Do you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized? Into John's baptism. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, we're not told if they were baptized by Apollos or not. Back to dinner last night, I told this guy that he was going to feature big time in the sermon. I hope he might be listening, this retired brigadier in the British Army. He said to me, completely unprompted, I promise it was completely unprompted. He said to me, one of the things that really intrigued me when I was in Iraq was the Mandean religious sect. I said, well, how interesting. I'd never heard of the Mandeans. I tried to not, you know, like it is, tried not to show how ignorant I was. But, um, oh, well, t- tell me, what precisely do they believe? Oh, they are followers of John the Baptist. Oh, I said, you are going to feature strongly in the sermon tomorrow <laughs> evening. It's wonderful when you have a thing like that. So I went back, Googled the Mandeans. They're all over. I mean, in, in Iraq, in Iran, in Turkey. They're people who think that John the Baptist is this was the son of God. They've never followed the teaching of John the Baptist, and here were 12 of them. 
Now, we need to be really careful here as we look at verses 5 and 6. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were 12 men. These verses have been used alongside others in Acts to suggest that for every Christian disciple, a normal pattern of Christian development is for there to be a second initiation experience, whereby having begun by believing in Jesus, it is then normal at a later stage of Christian development to receive a full immersion in the Holy Spirit, at which point you can then engage in what you might call power-packed Christian living. Now, this is the teaching in the whole Pentecostal movement. You'll find it as a kind of second blessing or higher life theology. And you can understand the language of higher life. Oh, you know, you've started off with Jesus. Now you really want, you know, all guns blazing Christianity. You've got to be immersed in this second experience. And in such schemes, the mark of having received the Spirit is speaking in tongues and prophecy will come to those in just a moment. Frequently, those who have not received those gifts of tongues and prophecy are then understood not to have the full benefits of the Holy Spirit at work within them in power, and therefore to be in some way or another a kind of second-class Christian. You end up with a sort of two-tier Christianity. People who are in economy and people in club class. And it struck me, you know, it may well be that there are numbers here. I can almost guarantee there are a number of people here who in one way or another have experienced that sort of thing in their Christian past. Certainly I have. It's a wretched way of thinking that is profoundly misconceived. And it promotes, as I say, division and two-tier Christianity. It's a million miles away from the Christian gospel. And it cannot be that there are some people who call themselves Christian and have submitted to Jesus who do not have the Holy Spirit. There is no such category in the Bible. It's not possible to believe in Jesus and follow him as Lord and Savior without the Spirit having entered into your life and begun his work within you. It simply is not possible. Read the first three chapters of John's Gospel. Jesus himself said, unless a person is born again by the water and the Spirit, they cannot enter the kingdom. So you can't become a follower of the Lord Jesus unless the Holy Spirit has been worked within you. Flick over a couple of pages, would you? Actually, quite a few, to page 1137. If you're not in a Bible like we've got here, it's Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Romans 8, verse 9, page 1137. Now, it's the second half of the verse that we're interested in, but do you see here? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's talking to people who are Christian, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. Conversely, if you belong to Christ, 
you must have the spirit of Christ. And so what we have to understand from chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, is that these individuals have not yet begun the Christian life. And actually, as you look at the text, that is absolutely the case, isn't it? They haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. They are some sort of believer, but they are believers in the baptism of repentance that John taught. That's exactly what they say about themselves. Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. One was to come after him, Jesus, and he brings the baptism of the Spirit. So it's worth just pausing and saying, you know, this teaching of Pentecostalism is extraordinarily unhelpful, profoundly divisive. And it ends up with, in a church, some who are kind of superpowered Christians and others who are just ordinary. And it's entirely against the teaching of the New Testament. And it may well be that some of us here have been exposed to this kind of thing. And I hope this evening is a real help to you. We're either followers of Jesus or we're not. Jesus commands us to turn to him. Jesus offers us forgiveness of sins. As we surrender to Jesus, asking him to come into our lives, he comes into our lives by the power of his Holy Spirit. You then have the Holy Spirit and there's no division. So the result of the uninstructed instruction of Apollos and others who had followed his teaching is unconverted so-called disciples who need to hear the Christian gospel clearly and be converted. And incidentally, the speaking in tongues here, as in all of Acts, is speaking in languages. The word is languages. And in Acts chapter 2, as the Holy Spirit breaks in for the first time, The disciples speak in recognizable human languages and they speak the word of God, i.e. they prophesy. And in Acts chapter 10, as non-Jews turn to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And in this second hugely significant moment in the history of the world, non-Jews receive the Holy Spirit And they start speaking in recognizable human language because the Spirit wants the gospel to be heard and understood. And they speak the word of God. And here these 12 irregular disciples of John receive the Holy Spirit and they speak in recognizable human language. And they declare the word of God. Prophesying is speaking the truth from God's word to another person. It's what you do on a Wednesday evening at Read, Mark, Learn. It's what we're doing this evening. It's what we do at after eights as we go and speak to each other about the word of God. And that is prophesying. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, that's what they start doing. Speaking about Jesus to other people in a way they can understand. Now, as I say, in a sense, the particular issue is not the point. The point is that with every advance of the Christian gospel, there will be, if you like, mopping up operations And this should not surprise us, and it's a wonderful thing. And may I say, I think it should impact the way we operate in our workplace Christian unions and in our university Christian unions and amongst one another here on a Sunday evening. Do you know, in the school Christian unions that uh, a number of the people at the 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 teenagers at the four o'clock who are starting Christian unions in their schools, there are all sorts of people from different Christian backgrounds who attend. Great opportunity 
to help gently, humbly, graciously to instruct. And in the workplace Christian unions that a number of you are involved in, I hope you're trying to start one in your office if you haven't got one already or amongst colleagues or whatever, there'll be all sorts of people from a variety of different backgrounds. Great to have the opportunity graciously and sensitively to do the kind of instruction that we see going on here. Well, that brings us to Paul's extended ministry in Ephesus, which begins now, chapter 19, verse 1, and it extends for quite a while. But what we find in verse 8 through 20 is the voluntary renunciation of evil practices as the word of God takes hold and men and women are liberated from the wretched oppression of evil. Paul gets ensconced in Ephesus for two and a half years. It's the usual pattern. He goes into the synagogue. He gets turfed out on his ear. He then hires the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This is like our lunchtime work up at Dirty Dicks where we uh, speak the gospel. Before that, it was in an amber nightclub. You know, they all like to have us in the lunchtime because there's nothing going on then. So there we are speaking the gospel in the workplace. It's absolutely wonderful. It's happening all over the city. There's one down at Fleet Street, isn't there, in the pub opposite the church there. So Paul is there in the lecture hall of Tyrannus doing his lunchtime talk. And uh, he's there for two years And his ministry is accompanied by those marks of a genuine apostle, unique to the apostles, of signs and wonders. But in 13 through 17, we see one particular incident which demonstrates what happens when the gospel really takes hold. Ephesus was the greatest city of Asia It was the leading metropolis. Paul had been prevented from going there, as we said before, and now he's ended up back there. It was also, like London, a hotbed of superstition, evil forces, and pagan practice. I think it's quite hard for most of us to grasp just how grim it is to live in a culture that has not been impacted by the Christian gospel. Remove the teaching of Jesus from a culture and superstition takes hold. We have the benefit of living in the wake of 2,000 years of Christian teaching. People are trying to unravel that. But if you want to see how wretched it is to live in a culture unimpacted by Christianity, look at verse 19. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and find it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Well, I did the math, as our American friends say, and on the new minimum wage of 11 pounds an hour, That is 4.5 million pounds worth of scrolls and magic spells. Can you imagine living in such a dark and oppressive and wicked culture? It's like living in London. But the gospel has so taken hold that voluntarily people came forward. Again, this is interesting because you'll find through your life there are any number of Christians who well-meaningly want to impose through legislation Christian 
practice on a culture, almost kind of creating Christian Britain. Note, this is voluntary. And there have been times in the history of the church where the gospel has so taken hold that there's been a radical, voluntary turning away from wicked practice. I've got about eight examples here. We haven't got time for them. Here are just a couple. One of my favorite books on my bookstore was given to me by my grandfather. He wouldn't allow it out of his house. Clearly, when he died, that was possible. It was called England Before and After the Wesleys. Read it. What was England like before the gospel took hold under Charles and John Wesley? Utterly pagan. The social change, extraordinary. I have a book here. It's uh, actually about the Welsh revival. And you can read in the early chapters, it's called Grace, Grit, Grit and Grumption. The Welsh revival was the 1890s through to about 1920. You know, thousands upon thousands of Welsh people were converted. The pubs were emptied. And the early chapters chart the fury of the landlords. I think of the end of slavery. Or under Shaftesbury, the protection of children and women, the rolling back of gambling, the raising of the age of sexual consent, children brought down out of the chimneys, women brought out of effective slavery. I've been reading Tom Holland's Pacts about the Roman Empire. I wonder if you've ever realized just how bestial, literally bestial, the Roman Empire was, what they gloried in, in the gladiatorial arena, utter pagan behavior. And the Christian gospel changed all that. And the Christian gospel changed that in Ephesus. On my news feed this week, 50,000 mosques closed in Iran as Christianity spreads. Tehran. Recent comments by a senior Iranian cleric that around 50,000 of Iran's 75,000 mosques are closed highlights the growth of Christianity in Iran and disillusion with the regime's Islamic outlook. A nation being freed from oppressive satanic religion by the glorious gospel of Jesus. I asked one of the teenagers what would happen. I'd worked in a school once where there were 100 children in the Christian Union in a school of 800. It was extraordinary. Just down the road, there was another school where at one stage there were 50% of the children back in the 1980s in the Christian Union, so much so that it was a boarding school On Christian Union nights, some houses would only have five out of the 80 children in the house. They were all the Christian Union. I said to this lad, what would happen in your school if the gospel took hold? And he mentioned three things. I'll try and remember them. One, it would radically change the way we treated each other. Two, internet pornography, okay, done as a laugh, both paedophilic and heterosexual adult would be eradicated. Filthy language. Striking, isn't it? In a school in London.
But this is what happens when the gospel takes hold. Yeah, uninstructed instructors need instructing, and let's try and do that in a way that is gracious and tactful and kind and generous. Uh, Yeah, unconverted uh, believers need converting, and it may well be that you've come along here on a Sunday evening and uh, you've made sort of some sort of exploration, but you haven't actually yet surrendered to Jesus. Well, what awaits you is just wonderful. God's Holy Spirit coming into your life and changing your life for the better. And then pagan, utterly pagan practice eradicated. May that happen apace. William, we'll start with a few of the questions about the passage that we've just heard preached. Um, So we've got one question to kick us off on chapter 18, verse 25. When it says that Apollos only knew the baptism of John, what exactly does that mean? Does it mean that he'd been taught everything in the Old Testament about the Messiah, but he just didn't know that Jesus was that Messiah? Or quite how much did he know? Oh, that's a really good way of putting it, George. I haven't thought of that. Thank you. I think that kind of answers the question, really. But, (laughs) I mean, like what I said in the talk, I think, I mean, John came saying, I baptize you with water among you, or in John's gospel, or after me in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, comes one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John was doing a divine human work of preparing the way for Jesus. He was, of course, you know, the last great prophet of the Old Testament, but he was pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. So uh, people got baptized through him. I mean, my friend last evening said what had struck him was the seismic impact of Jesus and John the Baptist in the Middle East, that today there could be still people who followed John the Baptist. I mean, it was a seismic impact. People came from all over the surrounding regions to hear John the Baptist. And they turned back to God, but they hadn't yet identified Jesus as the Messiah. And what I think is interesting here is it says Apollos taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And I suspect, therefore, he had a good historical knowledge of the activity of Jesus but he hadn't joined up, if you like, the theological dots to realize that Jesus was the one whom John was pointing towards. And of course, once then, you can only receive the Holy Spirit when your sins have been washed away. The Holy Spirit cannot enter the life that is not had its sins washed. And so we're, um, uh, we're, we are um, born again of water, and the Spirit, washing away of sin through the death of Jesus on the cross, and then with this cleansed life, the Holy Spirit comes in. But he clearly hadn't seen that. So he had a knowledge, but not a theological knowledge. Great. We've got a number of questions about speaking in tongues. Oh, yeah. And why you think those are identifiable human languages. And then also on that, how does that relate then to prophecy? Is it sure. really just speak as simple as speaking God's truth to one another. Okay, great. Well, let's turn back to Acts chapter 2 and have a look at it, because this is the only place in the New Testament where the phenomenon of speaking in tongues is actually explained. There is nowhere else where the phenomenon is explained. Okay, so what you find happening... So um, ecstatic language is a normal part of most religions... In most religions, you will find ecstatics 
who speak in tongues. So there are Muslims who speak in, uh, in ecstatic language. There are Hindus who speak in ecstatic language. So it's a normal part of most religions. The question is, should we read what we witness, experienced in many normal religions back into what was actually happening in Acts chapter 2? And I don't think we should. So if you have a look at verse 4, they were, chapter 2, verse 4, page 1096, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other, and the, the word is languages, the word is tongues, it's the word for language, it's translated elsewhere as language, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then you have a look at verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, that's uh, people converted to Judaism, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own and the language, the word is language, the mighty works of God. Now, to confirm it, verse 6, and at this sound, the multitude came together and were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own dialect. The word is dialect. Now, when you think about it theologically, this has to be right. God's great plan and purpose is for every nation to hear the good news of King Jesus. Every nation. That is his plan and purpose from the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 12, 15, 17. That's his desire, that nations will be blessed. Trace it through the Psalms, trace it through the prophets, Isaiah 60. This is his great desire. When the Holy Spirit comes, God has now, through the Lord Jesus, made possible the forgiveness of sins for anybody. They don't have to go up to Jerusalem and sacrifice a bull or a goat or whatever it happens to be. Jesus has paid the price. Now, anybody, as the Holy Spirit comes, is to hear of the Lord Jesus. So the most natural thing in the world is for, when the Spirit comes... The, the believers here to start speaking in native languages so that people from all over the Middle East could understand the gospel, which is what they go on to speak. So Acts 2 refers to their speaking the gospel in the language and the ideas, rather, concepts of prophecy. So that's why I say speaking, because this is the only place in the Bible where the phenomenon of speaking in tongues is actually explained. I don't think it is the same as ecstatic speech that you find in other religions. There is one verse in Corinth, Corinth 1 Corinthians 12, where you could possibly argue that it might be unintelligible language. That's where it talks about the language of angels. But that is assuming that the language of angels, that are messengers, is unintelligible. Actually, the language of angels could equally be intelligible. It often is, because people understand what angels say. So I wouldn't be so kind of absolutist as to say, well, if you think you have the gift of tongues and you speak in unintelligible language, that is absolutely not what the Bible's talking about. Um, because I, think, I don't think one can go quite that far. But I don't think it is what the Bible is talking about primarily. It's talking about languages and people hearing the gospel. Now, turn to Revelation chapter 19, verse 5, and I think that will just give us a very quick... Revelation is the last book in the Bible. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far. Oh, I have turned you to completely the wrong verse. I mean verse 10. I knew it was chapter 19. Okay, we haven't got maps in our Bible, so if you get to the index at the back. Anyway, the index is at the front, you're totally lost. Okay, verse 10. 
Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. He said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of, of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When you think about the Old Testament prophets, what were the Old Testament prophets doing? All of them, to an individual, were speaking of Jesus. Now we have the testimony of Jesus. Every one of us now is a prophet, if we have the Spirit, because we now can testify, bear witness to Jesus. And so the the word of prophecy is speaking about the Lord Jesus according to what the prophets, capital P, and the apostles, capital A, have told us about Jesus, which is why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 or 5, chapter 5, we are told to weigh prophecy, as in W-E-I-G-H, which is, I hope, what you're doing in your small group. Is what X, Y, and Z is saying about Jesus from the Bible actually what the Bible says? Or are they saying something that is not true? Weigh it. Is that true or isn't it true? But insofar as it is true, it's a genuine word of prophecy to you because they're testifying about Jesus and, and, and telling you. And that's exactly what you'd expect the Holy Spirit to do when he comes. Because what he's concerned in is your own personal holiness and the glory of Jesus through the proclamation, through the proclamation of his name. Hence the languages and the prophecy. And I would argue, I think, I wouldn't just argue, I would say definitively, what you're doing in your small group is the work of the Holy Spirit because you're prophesying to one another. And I'm afraid I just haven't got time for these churches that say, oh, well, we got, you know, have a time of prophecy and three people stand up and talk about, you know, waves washing over everybody or trees sprouting and growing or whatever it happens to be. And we just got three people prophesying. I want to say we've got four, near 400 people here. I take it we're all going over something to eat. Most of us are going over or going out to Pizza Hut or whatever it is we happen to be doing. And we're all going to be prophesying to one another, speaking the word of God. So we've got 400 prophets and prophetesses. It's absolutely wonderful. Praise God for the work of the Spirit. Um, you mentioned, William, as well in, in the sermon about how the gospel can bring about social change. Yeah, yeah. I've got lots of questions about, can you pass out how that works? So as Christians, should we be trying to, to legislate, to impose Christian values on society? Yeah. Should we be letting the gospel bring about that transformation on its own, as it were? How do those two things relate, the, the spiritual and then the societal. Yeah, I mean, the, people have written huge tomes on this, so I, we can't even begin to, but to, to kind of really... But what, what I was trying to suggest that here is it is voluntarily, voluntarily done. And I think we can sometimes get things back to front. We can want the kind of wonderful reforms brought about by a Wilberforce and a Shaftesbury and in the you know, the alcohol-soaked um, um, Welsh culture in, at the end of the 19th century. We can want, because we can long for that change, and we think we must legislate against it. Whereas actually under Christian gospel, what happens then is people hear your legislation, they don't hear the gospel. It's not done voluntarily. 
The difficult thing is, in a democracy, as the Christian gospel really takes hold, you will find that we, because we're in a democracy, and realize what is actually good for people to be truly human, will seek to legislate um, and so that just that just happens, and wonderful social change will come by legislation ultimately. But don't get the cart before the horse. We need to be out there talking. As I had some sitting next to somebody else yesterday evening, obviously on the other side, they didn't just stick me on my own next to one person. Poor <laughs> bloke, that would have been the end of the world for him. But um, uh, you know, we were having a, such a, a good talk about. Christian ethics and sexual ethics are Christians and how good they are for men and women and how liberating they are. You know, and that's the kind of thing I'd want to be being persuasive over, that it comes from knowing and loving Jesus and wanting to live in a way which pleases him and what a liberation it brings to women and men when Christian sexual ethics are embraced as a culture and how damaging it is when they aren't to a whole culture. And I think that's a great way in to talk about the Christian gospel. We had a great gospel conversation. But uh, don't get the cart before the horse and don't try legislating when you've got a non-pagan culture. You're just going to be finger-wagging moralist. That's no good. And then on culture, we've got a couple of questions about the broader section of Acts that we've been looking at beyond the passage that we we were looking at this evening. So going back a couple of weeks to Paul's speech in the Areopagus in Athens, lots of people have used that to say that as as Christians, when we preach the gospel, we've got to engage with the culture and sort of dissect the culture in order to then, before we can then speak the gospel into it. And I think Tim, who was preaching on that passage, was saying, that's not quite what Paul is doing. Could you say a bit about what Paul is doing there? So if it's not critique the culture in order to convert, what is Paul's strategy for evangelism in Athens insofar as it represents London? Well, I think, I mean, Tim's sitting back there. He jolly well should come up and answer that question himself. (laughs) But uh, don't worry. I mean, I'll have a bash. I mean, I think what's going on in that passage is that what happens in the Areopagus is a follow-up meeting. He does the same thing that he does elsewhere in that he gives an effectively Bible sermon. But it is a follow-up meeting. And it's a follow-up meeting that he's requested to come and explain what he's been saying previously. What he has been saying previously is simply talking to people about Jesus and his death and resurrection. Now, it... In understanding what God has got to say in the Bible, it helps you to understand your culture. It helps us. The Bible explains the world. People without the Bible don't really understand the world. But God's word makes sense of God's world. So inevitably, as you're speaking the Bible to any group of people in any sort of culture, unless you're a Martian and you don't read a paper, have a news fleet, ever watch Netflix, or whatever your thing is. You don't live in the same world. If you're a Martian, you shouldn't really be preaching, okay? So Martians shouldn't be gospel workers. Martians shouldn't really be here at all, actually. But we'll leave <laughs> there's a couple at the back. There's a couple yeah. at the back. Yeah. Sorry, Nick, that's you back there. But, uh, <laughs> but um, that, 
according to George. Um, <laughs> but uh, just any normal person reading the Bible and understanding the gospel will be able to speak to somebody about the Lord Jesus, his death and resurrection. They will then start to ask questions, which is exactly what happens in Athens. And they haul him up to the Areopagus, where he does exactly the same thing again. And he gives, I think this is what Tim said, a Bible sermon constructed very similarly. What you find is people saying, oh, when Paul went to Athens, he did something very different because he was amongst the intellectual elite. So he went rushing off to the library, did all sorts of research in, you know, Athenian culture and had a PhD in this, that and the other and cross-cultural something or something else. And then he was actually able to get traction in Athens. I personally don't think there's any evidence of that whatsoever. What Paul did do was have a basic, I mean, Charlie Screen, who spoke on this a number of years ago, a basic GCSE knowledge of the people amongst whom he lived. He quoted a very popular philosopher. I mean, who might that be, George? I don't know. I've not quoted, not on... Taylor Swift. Yeah, (laughs) quoted Taylor Swift a couple of times. uh, And... um, uh, you know, and, 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 and so forth. So, he, you know, he, had a, he lived in the same world as everybody else. But he taught the gospel. And it kind of becomes rather sort of spooky. You have to become an expert in this and an expert in that. No, you live in the same world. You're not a Martian. You go to the same parties. You have the same sort of friends. And so you take what you learn in the gospel and use that by way of illustration. But he basically gave... First of all, the death and resurrection of Jesus in the marketplace, where all the pagans were. And then in the Areopagus, he talked them in the follow-up meeting in a similar fashion, where all the pagans were. So I don't think it's nearly as much mystique around Acts 17 as all sorts of people. And I think that the reason I find it tiresome that people have developed this mystique is that it de-skills us. We think we have to have a PhD in the culture before we can start to speak. And uh, uh, no, 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 you don't have to do that. Talk to them about Jesus. Great. I think we've just got time for a couple of questions more on application. Uh, so one, just going back to your sermon and saying, uh, wanting to make the most of tr- the training that's available here at St. Helens. I mean, what would somebody sitting here this evening who thinks, yeah, I'd love to do that, but I'm not quite sure how, yeah. how could they really make the most yeah. of those opportunities? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's really helpful. I mean, I sort of think just keep breathing. I, I think immerse, immerse yourself. I mean, the trouble is you can go, oh, how am I going to do this? And I've got to do this and this and this and this and this and this. Actually, just, you know, there are things. You've been encouraged to come along to a Wednesday night small group Bible study. Come along. Wonderful. Uh, there's a youth group, you know, with uh, 70 kids in it. They are key, 60, 70 kids come regularly. They're all in their um, 14 to 18-year-olds. They are keen as mustard. I mean, it's thrilling. They're starting Christian unions in their pagan schools. Absolutely wonderful. Say to yourself, well, look, I might go along and try and help out there in some way once I've got a bit settled. Um, There's a Sunday school with, you know, 100 trades. Sunday morning is bedlam in here. You can't move without treading on a child. Um, (laughs) Uh, and, you know, so you think, oh, well, I might go and serve in the Sunday school. So, you know, go along to a small group, find an area of service, and then keep breathing. And you will find, what, what I find it, it, wonderful is that the Lord directs a moving ship. I, I mean, that's 
mixing about 18 different metaphors. But, you know, if we, if we say to the Lord Jesus, I want to grow, please make me the most useful person I can be. I'd love to be trained. Well, there's a couple of good ways to start. Come to your midweek, find an area you can serve, and then you will find that there are any number of avenues. Five years' time, you'll think, oh, they've asked me to do this now. And yeah, I think I'll do that, and you will be trained some more. And then, you know, and so, so forth and so forth and so forth. So don't panic. I think the danger is you hear something like that, and somebody says, how am I going to make the most of it? And you want a whole list of 15 different things, and before you know it, you're learning Hebrew and, uh, and all, all, all the rest of it. Just keep breathing. Uh, but I don't just keep breathing, because that, that really wouldn't really be very helpful. It's just be... <laughs> Um, we're going to sing in a moment. We've just got time for one last question. You talked about word planting and church building. I did, what, deliberately. What would it look like to be really stuck in and involved in that ministry in the office or on campus? Well, I think loads of you are involved in word planting already. So to plant churches, I mean, this is a technical matter, that, technical point that I think matters Planting is not a word used for churches in the Bible. The word used for work in church is building. That matters because if you think church work is just about planting churches, you'll rush in a fit of enthusiasm to start a church, but you won't actually do the work of building it. Paul did planted the word, that's the Bible language, built the church. That's what we want to do. I think loads of you are doing that in your workplaces already. You know, you're looking to start a small group in the workplace, maybe 20 or 30 people in it for some of you. Well, that actually is the size of a New Testament church in many instances. And so you're doing a great work there. Um, we, we may say, to our, say in a few weeks' time, a few months' time, look, we're thinking of starting a new church in X, Y, or Z. And some people have been knocking around for seven or eight years at St. Helens may say, hmm, I might head off on that and go and start being involved in that. You know, there's this evening, isn't there, that we're doing on truth in a couple of weeks, few weeks' time. Well, you might have made a friend at work or a colleague had a word about Christian faith. They know you're a Christian. I say, would you like to come along to that? So it's kind of gossiping the gospel to use and then using the opportunities uh, to try and build the church as you come along Wednesday evening, help in the Sunday school or the youth work, or whatever it happens to be. You know, go out. I met someone earlier who's just been out doing walk-up evangelism in Spitalfield or wherever. It's great stuff. That is wonderful.